Let's turn to Romans 8, please. It's hard for me to leave these first 13 verses, really, the 12 verses between 2.8.2 and 8.13. And I kind of want to hammer them down before we go any further, and we will be in Romans 8. I have many things, accumulation of insights to communicate to you, but I want to do it with a disciplined, measured way. Romans chapter 8. I was thinking this morning in my final edit of the message, which sometimes makes me a little late in the morning, but in a couple of movies I saw, one of them probably you've all seen, Braveheart, and another movie that I found very excellent was Henry V, where the famous speech is given to the troops, that famous phrase, the Shakespearean phrase, comes from Henry V in his speech to the troops before battle. And that's where that famous phrase, band of brothers, comes from. We happy few, we band of brothers. And it was a very stirring and rousing speech before they went into battle. And of course, there's the William Wallace speech to the Scotsmen before their battle with the forces of the enslaving power of England. And they were both very rousing speeches. And that's really what Paul is doing. He's leading from the front. He's an officer over the phalanx of believers of this present age. And he's doing pretty much the same thing, rousing a phalanx of believers for the battle. And the battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, supra-human powers, defeated at Calvary, but who have not left the field of battle. Defeated, but refusing to leave the field, the theater of war. These powers are listed by name, by various names, in Romans eight thirty-five through 39. Paul introduces us to a concept that we're, we will be building up to gradually in Romans 8 called the agon, the agona. We looked at this pretty carefully, agona, in Philippians. We've sort of emphasized it because of the key verse in Philippians 1.30, the agona. It's also found in Colossians chapter 2, 1 and 2. It is a field of contention, an arena of battle. And that's why I introduced apocalyptic theology along with the universal salvation concept because we are in a battle. And this is really, if you read it, it's a, all the way through Romans really, is a rousing speech as we enter into battle. And it's a speech in which we are assured of victory because victory has already been won. At the beginning of this year, in fact, on New Year's Eve Eve, I introduced what is called Operation Epsilon, using the Greek letter Epsilon, capital Epsilon. And it applies mostly to eschatology or to Christological eschatology. And, but there's another element where epistemology, where Epsilon comes in, and it's epistemology. I found, and I believe that theology should not be done in the academy, but in the church. We're all theologians. 
in epistemology is something that usually is treated in the seminary or the academy, but doesn't usually translate over into church life. And that's really what a pastor is supposed to do. The pastor teacher is primarily a pastor theologian, but he brings down lofty concepts to be used in the field of everyday existence, everyday battle, really, in the apocalyptic battle that we're engaged in. Epistemology simply means the study of knowing, the study of thinking, the study of knowing. And in Christ, there's a radical new way of knowing. It's not like we come here to supplement the knowledge that we have. It's We come here to be converted into a new way of knowing altogether. It's a new way of knowing because it's a new mind knowing. It's the mind of the spirit, the mindset of the spirit. Epistemological transformation, then, involves the conversion of the mindset, the direction, the inclination of the mind. In Romans 12.2, in a central piece in Romans, Paul emphasizes, stop being conformed to this age in the thinking he's speaking of, the transformation of our mindset. It occurs, this transformation, an epistemological transformation or a conversion of the mindset, a redirecting of the mindset, occurs only in those in whom the Holy Spirit liberates the will from the controlling influences of the evil age. Only when the spirit liberates the human will, the freedom of the human will is largely an untruth unless the spirit liberates us, liberates the will. When the spirit liberates the will from controlling influences of the evil age, the three big influences we've seen, sin with a capital S, death, capital D, and flesh, all caps, which is almost the same as sin and death. For the scripture says the mind of the flesh is death. It is enmity against God. And the flesh does the same thing as sin. It enslaves. And the law doesn't help. In fact, the law only helps the flesh and sin. Sin was in the world before the law came as Paul makes clear in Romans 5.13. And then from 7.7 7 all the way to 25, he shows the picture of a person who attempts to be justified in God's eyes by the law, which has been hijacked by sin and weakened by the flesh. So these are the powers against which we are engaged. Once we engage ourselves against these powers, we find it rather silly to hate people or to be at enmity with human beings, or have a war with flesh and blood, or enter into the foolish battles of ideologies. As I said last week, the church, the body of Christ, and communicators of the word at large, all of us, should maintain some critical distance from all ideologies. There are things to be critiqued in socialism. There are things to be critiqued in capitalism. There are things to be critiqued in all human-based ideologies. And so we are here to preach the gospel. The proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation, the apocalypse of a mystery that's been hidden in the writings of the prophets for ages, 
but is now by the command of God, by God's command, to be revealed. In other words, God has made the Old Testament a pop-up book with all the images of Christ popping in this age by the Holy Spirit. An epistemological transformation then happens. It begins when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God as believer priests in Romans 12, 1. And we only do this because we have a liberated will. Up until then, the will can only be enslaved by religion. And so the mindset of the flesh is death, Romans 8, 6, because it's opposed to the living God. When this impulsive desire which is the flesh. The flesh can also be called, I do it by an acronym, IDF, the impulsive desire of the flesh, something that controls humanity and that humanity can't ultimately control, even if it gets stoic about it. Stoicism is another form of the control of the flesh or the, the enslavement of the flesh. And so the flesh, with all caps, The mindset of it is death precisely because it stands antithetically to the living God. When this impulsive desire controls the law that came from Sinai, for example, as it has controlled it, as Paul shows in Romans 5.13, he does it more dramatically in Galatians, which we will be getting to before too long. The law itself then becomes an enslaving entity. In religious circles, the impulsive desire of the flesh becomes the desire to show oneself as distinct and superior to others by external conformity to some code, whether it's written or unwritten, or some doctrine, or some status, merit, or works in the energy of fallen humanity, the energy of our fallen humanity, unaided by the Spirit of God. In that sense, the negative definition of religion is the attempt to show oneself above one's fellows by the energy of the fallen humanity without the Spirit of God and without the grace of God. Epistemological conversion, then, to take this big word and bring it down to the trenches of our own life and fighting against principalities and powers. This conversion occurs in those in whom the spirit gifts with faith and who, with their liberated will, offer themselves or their bodies, their bodies there means our entire being to God, as a living sacrifice. This act, is a reasonable act of service to God, as Romans 12.1 says. It's reasonable because now we are a kingdom of priests to God. We have been washed, cleansed, liberated from our sins by the blood of Christ and made into a kingdom of priests to God. And so it's a reasonable act for a priest to present sacrifice. And the sacrifice most reasonable to present is our bodies. This act of service to God, Romans 12, 1, as a kingdom of priests, freed from the control of sin, 
and purified from sins, our complicity with that sin, and with a conscience purged from dead works by the blood of Jesus Christ, allows us to serve the living God. Notice the word living God. Hebrews 9.14, a profound verse, one for memorization, if you want to memorize one, because there the interlocking activity of the triune God is demonstrated in the Christ event, and it bleeds over, pun intended, into our life, our livingness, and our service in the present. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God the Father without spot. Without spot refers to the Christ as the lamb. How much more will that act, the blood of Christ, purify your conscience from dead works? That means it purifies your conscience from the need to do works, dead works, in order to assuage the conscience for bad works that you've done or in order to justify yourselves before God. The conscience is purified from dead works. And then again, it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, there's Christ and the spirit, offered himself to God, that's the Father, without spot, purify your conscience to serve the living God, service of the living God. With a liberated will, though, there's a catch, Not really a catch, but there's a warning, a caveat. With a liberated will, one can still choose either to walk in the spirit or to remain under the control of the flesh. Imagine that. That's what made Paul so mad in Galatians. You've begun in the spirit, and now you're going to be perfected by the flesh. So because we have a liberated will, our will is free. Our will then becomes free to choose to walk in the spirit or walk under the dominion of the spirit, under the lordship of Christ, or to remain under the control of the flesh or go back under the control of the flesh with its impulsive desire to be superior to others. By this choice, when we choose to go under the flesh again, The spirit who sealed us until the day of redemption. That's very important. Ephesians 4.30. The spirit who sealed us. We're signed. We're sealed. We're delivered. Sealed us until the day of redemption. That's the redemption of our bodies, which we've presented to God. Our bodies will actually be redeemed from the corruption that leads to death. In resurrection, until the day of redemption, the Holy Spirit has sealed us. That very Holy Spirit, however, can be grieved. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes people's personal grief is connected to the fact that they have grieved the Holy Spirit who indwells them. It has profound effect upon our life and livingness and our mentality and intentionality. So, by the choice of a liberated will, if we choose to remain under the control of the flesh and the energy of our unaided fallen humanity to be justified before God, we grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30.
In Paul's time, and we have to make this, fan this out for many kinds of other applications, but in Paul's time, the IDF, impulsive desire of the flesh, was manifested in some in Rome and in three churches in northern Galatia, as we'll find out, who were boasting in circumcision as a beginning of an outward conformity to the law of Moses in the energy of the fallen flesh. They were boasting in circumcision. While others were provoked by that boasting, arrogance always yields to arrogance. Arrogance always produces arrogance. Pride always initiates and provokes pride in others. That made certain Gentile believers boast in their uncircumcision and show themselves to be better than those who are circumcised because, after all, according to their anti-Semitic view, God has forsaken and abandoned Israel after the flesh, and he has not. That's what Romans 11 is teaching, and we're hitting that mostly on Wednesday nights, barring polar vortexes, hurricanes, earthquakes, and other things. So then, Paul says, neither of these things matter. He makes the point very strongly. Galatians, circumcision, uncircumcision, don't mean nothing. Don't mean nothing. They mean nothing at all. I use the double negative on purpose. What matters, he says, is a new creation. And a new creation is something brought into being entirely by divine action by God. What matters is a new creation, Galatians 6.15. What matters is a faithfulness that works in the dynamic field of love, which implies that hyperiphania, which is the desire to make oneself above another, and that was the desire that motivated the disciples. Jesus said, you will not be like the Gentile dictators and rulers that you see around you, who lorded over others dominated over others. Rather, if you're going to be great, then be the least. And if you want to be the greatest, be the least of all, be the slave of all. And that, of course, is Jesus himself. He's the greatest because he made himself the slave of all, the servant of all. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 40 to 55, Deutero Isaiah. And he said, the son of man for your example, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew twenty twenty eight. We know what the many means. So what matters is a new creation called into being by God, justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and controlled by the love of Christ which is the fruit of the Spirit. Hyperiphania, which I introduced last week as a theme, is precisely the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is irreconcilably at odds with the Spirit. And that's shown here in our passage in Romans 8, 2 to 13. This passage reads and speaks powerfully as a speech given by an officer who leads from the front a phalanx of soldiers into battle. 
And here it is, Romans 8, 2. For the law And here the word law takes on a nuance of meaning. The same word law, namas, can have five or six meanings. The same word sarks, flesh, can have five or six meanings. In every case, the meaning has to be derived from the context, from the way it's used in the context. And so the law here, we could actually translate as the power. For the power of the spirit of life. Please notice that word life. The power of of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me. Notice the word liberated from the law. Paul continues with the first person singular that he used all the way through Romans seven, a speech in character has liberated me from the law, which means the power of sin and death. These are two adverse superhuman powers that once enslaved us for what the Sinaitic law that's the law of Moses that came from Sinai Paul makes a drastic daring astonishingly bold exegetical move in Galatians to show that the law that came from Sinai was given through the hand of angels and how that made it infinitely inferior to the coming of Christ and the coming of faith which is one thing There's some powerful stuff coming up in Galatians. For what the Sinaitic law, the Mosaic law, we could call it, the law that came from Sinai, was powerless to do. Powerless to do two things, according to Galatians 3.21, to give life and to make righteous. To make righteous by giving life. Law can't do it. For what the... Mosaic law, we could say, was powerless to do because it was rendered powerless by the flesh. All caps. The flesh is like the power of sin that both commandeered the law or hijacked it, captured it, whatever you want to say, kidnapped it. And the flesh then became operative in the human bodily members of every person in Adam. So what the law of Moses could not do in that it was rendered impotent, not just weakened, rendered totally strengthless, completely impotent by the flesh. What the law could not do, this is the phrase that's the kicker, God did. God did. That's eschatological viewpoint. Eschatological, Christological. In fact, I call it, In my notes, I do it this way. Christology, I have the key and then E. Christological eschatology. You can't separate eschatology from Christology. You can't separate anthropology, the study of man, from Christology. You can't separate soteriology, salvation, from Christology. And so we have here. What the law could not achieve, what it could not accomplish, because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means in the likeness of fallen humanity in Adam, in the likeness of it. 
He was in the likeness of everybody else who's sin-controlled and sin-complicit, but he was not sin-controlled, nor was he sin-complicit. He knew no sin, and he became sin. Only one who knew no sin could become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Let's continue, though. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, please note my translation, for the removal of sin. For the removal of sin. For sin here means for the removal of sin. It's a sin offering. It's an expiatory offering that he's referring to here. So it's proper to translate it for the removal of sin. God condemned sin. S-I-N, capital S-I-N, not human beings. He did not condemn human beings. He condemned sin in the flesh. And there the word flesh means the flesh of his sinless son. Where was sin condemned? In the flesh that Jesus Christ became in his incarnation. He became flesh to become sin. And in his resurrection, God made him to be righteousness for us all. Our righteousness, the Lord, our righteousness. Verse four, in order that the rectitude required by the law, the Torah itself, the law itself, Jesus said, can be reduced to one commandment, really a twin commandment. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your soul. And Jesus added, to Deuteronomy 6.5, he added Leviticus 19.18, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all the law and all the prophets. That means these two commands summarize everything that the law commands. The righteousness that the law requires is total love for God and selfless love for others. But that cannot be fulfilled by the law or the power of the law because sin and the flesh weakened the law. That rectitude that the law commands, which is love, is only fulfilled in us who walk in the Spirit, who totally depend on the Spirit and who literally let the Spirit produce that love in us. It's the gift of his love, which Dan just sang about. The gift of God's love. The gift of God's own love. What the law required, but could not make happen in us, God did. And now he continues to do it by the Holy Spirit. And so the rectitude required by the law which here is the the law of God summed up in two mandates, to love God and love one's neighbor, would be fulfilled in us. We could say in our case. That is, those who are liberated from the powers of sin and death, Paul's talking about here. That is, in those who comport themselves or walk here is used metaphorically to behave in a particular manner. And it has an ethical tone to it. Those who comport themselves 
while in their present creaturely, this is very fine, this is what I call brain surgery in exegesis, because flesh is used here the next time, while in their present creaturely frailty. Flesh here means while during the time of our present creaturely frailty. Creaturely frailty means if I step out in front of a speeding bus, I'm going to die. My body's going to be shattered. It's a frail body that we live in. I cannot lift the earth or hold it on my shoulders. And I have a frail human body. The resurrection body is going to be entirely different. But while we live in these present creaturely frailty, called the flesh, in a ne- not a negative, but a, just a regular sense, if we live in this body not determined by the flesh, here flesh is all caps, meaning the suprahuman power of the flesh and its adverse power, but by the spirit, so therefore we have, look at Romans 8, 4 now. That's all to do this one verse. In order that the rectitude required by the law, love, would be fulfilled in us, that is, in those who comport themselves while in their present creaturely frailty, not determined by, controlled by, or directed by the flesh, but by the Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, who raised Christ from the dead, as we will see, and who resides right now in our bodily members. Verse 5, for those who are determined, we could say controlled, directed, dominated by the flesh, all caps there, and not the spirit, think and intend. They think and they intend with the flesh. That's the desire to show themselves above others. That's exactly what Paul is combating in Romans. But those who are determined, controlled, dominated by the spirit, think and intend with the spirit. This is the same spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the life-giving spirit. This is the same spirit that instigates humility, that demonstrates love, that serves one another by love rather than competes with one another by hyperiphania or hyperiphania, pride, arrogance. So the mindset, he goes on to say in verse 6, that's the fixed mental and intentional inclination of the flesh is death. That's the same thing that sin leads to, death, in Romans 6.24. And that simply means the absence of a meaningful, definitive life in Christ in time. The mindset of the flesh is death, but the fixed or inclination of the spirit is life and peace. That means an experience of life and of peace. That's God-approved livingness in the kingdom of God, according to Romans fourteen seventeen. For you see the fixed mental and an intentional inclination of the flesh. We could say the mindset of the flesh is hostility against God by definition. It does not submit to God's law, which is the law of love. Neither is it able to do so. So preach at it all day long. You're not going to make it happen. You'll make the opposite happen. Preach to fallen humanity to love, and they'll do the opposite. 
New paragraph, verse 8. Those who are controlled by the flesh, that is, those who are in the sphere of the suprahuman control of an impulsive desire of the flesh, cannot please God. What Paul's saying is, you've got an opposing Christian Jewish missionary there telling you to be justified by the works of the law, but the works of the law attempts to be justified by the works of the law, which the law was never given for, will bring you under the control of the flesh and you'll be competing with one another for status, competing for one another to be superior over one another by some external means. He's talking here specifically of the control of the flesh, getting hold of people who desire to be justified by good human works. And the preacher that doesn't understand this will make that flesh always be something sexual or sensual rather than what it's really aiming at here is that plus, and more than that, hyperiphania. So then, the fixed, invariable, we could call it, mental and intentional inclination of the flesh is hostility against God. Verse 8, those who are controlled by the flesh, that can even be Christians in this case, It's Christians whose will have been liberated by the Spirit, but then continue under the power of the flesh because of another gospel, and there's millions of those around today, that puts them under the yoke of slavery again. Those who are controlled by the flesh, and Paul's speaking specifically all the way back to Romans 7, by trying to be justified by the works of the law, which has been rendered impotent by the flesh, cannot please God. And here's the battle cry, but you are not in the dominion ruled by the flesh, but in the realm ruled by the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God actively resides in you. Now, if Christ is in you, he says, your body is dead as far as being an instrument of sin. Here goes all the way back to Romans 6.1. But the spirit keeps giving life. That's why we come to church. My words are spirit and life. The word preached gives life. It's the spirit who gives life. He keeps giving life. So, if Christ is in you, the body is dead as far as being an instrument of sin. But the spirit keeps giving life so that your body is an instrument of rectitude or righteousness. Literally means, in Romans 6.13, a weapon for righteousness. Therefore, the speech going into battle. Verse 11, moreover, if the spirit that awoke and raised Jesus from the dead resides in you, and he does, then the one who awoke and raised Christ from the dead the Father, will make alive your mortal bodies themselves. That's in bodily resurrection, as we see in Philippians 3.20 and other places. Through the instrumentality of his spirit who indwells you. Consequently, that is, as a consequence of the spirit in you, he says, band of brothers, siblings, brothers and sisters, we are not under obligation to the flesh. To live under the dominion of the flesh, which is the law hijacked by sin, 
The law hijacked by sin obligates those who adhere to it in the hope of justification by it. We aren't under that. Verse 13, for if you live dominated by the flesh, you must die. You'll die in the battle is what he's saying here. You'll be separated from the livingness that's participation with Christ. You'll be dead while you're living. You won't even know it in 1 Timothy 5, 6. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the actions of the body under the control of the flesh, the body under the control of the flesh, putting to death, you will live. This battle that you're coming into, you will live. You will live. The life of the coming age is what you'll live. The life that has conquered death, the life of Christ in you. Now, this last verse can be compared with Galatians 5.24, in which the apostle says this, those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh, all caps, with its passions and impulsive desires. There we have the impulsive desire of the flesh in Galatians 5.24. Romans 8.2-13 uses the flesh, and I've said this before, but it's worth repetition because it's an insight that has to be Fanned out. It uses the flesh, all caps, 12 times. And it uses the spirit 12 times in 12 verses, 8, 2 to 13. By doing this, the apostle contrasts an Israel, in quotes, dominated by the flesh, which is not Israel. The preaching of this other missionary opponent is, is producing a people that are not Israel. And this is over and against an Israel that's controlled by the spirit, which he calls at the height of his apostolic audacity, the Israel of God which isn't Gentiles instead of Jews. It isn't the church instead of Israel. It's Jews and Gentiles with liberated wills who are in union with Christ as a prolepsis of the new creation, as a anticipation of a universal new humanity. That's what the church is. It's not the Roman Catholic church. It isn't the Protestant church. It's not the church of England. It isn't the church of America, which will be some future Department of Justice ruled state religion that people will demand that you genuflect to in the future. It isn't some state-run church. It isn't some church that claims to be the church. It's people all over the world who have had faith elicited in them by the Spirit and their wills liberated from the power of sin. This church is an anticipation, a very imperfect one, of a universal redeemed humanity. It's an anticipation of it. You are an anticipation of it. So by pitting 12 times flesh with 12 times spirit, Paul is showing that the 12 tribes of Israel are not really Israel if they're dominated by the flesh in an attempt to be justified by the law that came through Moses. But those 12 times by the Spirit is the people of God, whether Jews or Gentiles, doesn't matter. Circumcision and uncircumcision, no longer markers of identity. So, 
Those who seek to be justified or approved in God's sight on the basis of their observance of the law were actually being controlled by the flesh and by the impulsive desire of the flesh at the roots of which is our message from last week, which I recommend you might listen to, hyperephania, the desire to show oneself to be better than others. This was the case in Galatia. When Paul took the pen from his secretary and wrote the powerful closing paragraph of that letter to the Galatians, you know what he did? He wrote with all caps, Galatians 6.11, big letters, probably inch high characters. He wrote 6.11 to 18, a power punch. He wrote in all all caps that he wrote about the opposing missionaries there. And he said, and if you you want to, you can even turn there to Galatians 6.12. He said about these missionaries who were pressuring the Galatians, the Galatian mothers to have their sons circumcised and the Galatian males to be circumcised. Those who are pressuring the Galatians regarding circumcision, he says about them in Galatians 6.12, those who are compelling you to be circumcised want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to make a good showing. They want to show themselves and their message to be superior to my message and they want to show you to be superior to the Gentiles uncircumcised in the flesh in the in your fallen humanity by making a mark in the fallen humanity of the males you're going to be somehow distinguished above others they want to make a fair showing in the flesh only Paul then roots finds a root deeper than this their fear of persecution for the cross of Christ. That's why pastors by the thousands know the doctrine I'm teaching you about universal salvation and believe in it, but don't dare to preach it because they're fearful of being expelled from their congregation and losing their salary, losing their standing, losing the meaningful title that they hold of most holy, holy macro reverend. I like to call it reverend. <laughs> because after all, Balaam's ass could do the same thing as them. Only he was more accurate, theologically speaking. So, <laughs> oh man, here we go. Those who are compelling you to be circumcised want to make a good showing in the flesh only so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised, that's Paul's opponents, his Jewish Christian. I'm I'm looking for a word for what these opponents, what to call them in Galatians. I got a lot of ideas, but we'll figure it out. For even the circumcised... These are the opposing Christian, Jewish Christian missionaries themselves. Even they don't keep the law. But they want, that's the word desire, you to have you circumcised to boast in your flesh. Reminds me of a church bulletin. We baptized 22 people this week. Oh, you're baptizing people to boast in the flesh of people that you dunked in your baptismal tank. There's not much difference here. 
Paul, the missionaries, incidentally, slandered Paul all over the place. They never stepped on his blue suede sandals, but they slandered his name all over the place. And like Paul's rhetorical opponent in Romans, which we have identified, they have desire to show themselves above Paul. And their gospel above his. Their gospel, air quotes. By boasting about how many Gentiles they circumcised and thus proselytized to become Israelites. But Paul detects the Adamic ontology in their motivation. Like Adam tried to hide from God, the opposing missionaries tried to avoid the inevitable persecution that comes when you preach Jesus Christ and him crucified as the only means of justification in God's sight. Even more than the Adamic is the satanic motivation. For in Isaiah 14, 13, while the prophet Isaiah addressed the king of Babylon, behind that taunting of that king of Babylon, Yahweh was speaking to Satan, whom he called Lucifer, the shining one. Isaiah 14, 13, what does he say? Yahweh was revealing the fall of the shining one who said in his heart, out of the heart comes hyperephania, Jesus said in Mark 7.22. That's what defiles the man. This shining one, the angel Satan, said in his heart, quote, I will ascend to the heavens. But even more importantly, he said, I will set up my throne above the stars, the stars is a word for the angels. I will set up my throne above the other angels. I will show myself superior to my contemporaries, to my peers, to my fellow angelic beings. Hyperephania. I will ascend. What are these opposing missionaries promoting? in the desire to have people circumcised, what will the circumcised male say? I am above my fellow Christians, my, these Gentiles, or the Gentiles who are circumcised. I'm above these weaker brethren. I'm above these others. I'm the true Israel now by circumcision. I've set my throne up above my contemporaries. It's very revealing then to look at the next verse in the Galatian letter in its context. But as for me, but as for me, in radical contrast to these opposing missionaries who have come in and disturbed you like agitating political agitators, provocateurs, as for me, in contrast with these opposing missionaries, May it never come about in any circumstance, he says, that I would boast in anything 
except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world, cosmos here, is the same as for the evil age. It indicates the evil age and emphasizes how it does things. Through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's ground and foundation for boasting then is the divine action in Christ. God's action, what God did in Christ by which the world was reconciled to God and their sins not imputed to them. That's the ground of his boasting. Paul boasted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, who was fully manifested in the Christ event. John 8, 28, John 14, 7 through 9, Romans 5, 6, Romans 5, 8. He boasted in Yahweh, who exercises saving mercy, justice, and righteousness on earth, and who delights in these things, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. The opposing missionaries were acting in mindless conformity with the world. And the world here means the standardized procedure of the evil age. Make yourself right in the eyes of God by ritual, by human action, by human status, by human measurement, by human comparisons. That's the evil age. That's what it, that's how it does. That's its method. It's its procedure. Paul was crucified to it. You know how many sermons are just addressing the fallen flesh and telling it to try to be as good as possible? You know how much those sermons are worth in the kingdom of God? Nothing. Nothing. Zero. Now, this is what it means to glory in the cross of Christ. He is crucified to the world, which procedure, the procedure of which is to bring about justification by things accomplished by human action. Quite simply. And then openly, outwardly shown and seen in the flesh. The Pharisees did it this way. They didn't want to show they were circumcised. That would be indecent exposure. So they said, well, let's blow a trumpet. Everybody's attention is drawn over to them. And then you watch them put that piece of change in the cup. Ding. Now, to be seen by other men, seen by other people, find glory and honor. And, oh, did you see what they did? Jesus said, well, that's as much reward as they're ever going to have right there, is the feeling of pleasure that they had by some idiot giving them approbation. So, Paul detected hyperephania, which is the impulsive desire of the flesh, which finds a mate in the fear of persecution in the opposing missionaries. Paul detected two motives, a religious motive 
in these preachers. You know why? They wanted to please their Jewish countrymen, especially the so-called church in Jerusalem, which Paul brazenly called Hagar, the enslaved covenant. He didn't call Jews that. He called the church in Jerusalem that sent ambassages all over the place to make sure that Gentiles are being circumcised and not eating foods that were forbidden. Got Peter in a lot of trouble in Antioch. And then Paul contrasted that Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, the church there, the church there, with the Jerusalem that is above, who is our mother and his free. That's where Galatians 5.1 comes in. Stand fast, therefore, in that freedom. You belong to the Jerusalem that's above. And don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Brought to you not by unsaved Pharisees, but Jewish Christian missionaries and some Gentile proselyte Christian missionaries. So Paul detected a religious motive. They wanted to please their Jewish countrymen. And he also perceived, and this is a historical reality, a political one to please their Roman overlords. At that time, the Roman overlords didn't have a problem with Jews, with circumcised Jews. They, they let them alone. They had an agreement. We'll leave you alone. And you just make some sacrifices to Caesar and we'll leave you alone. They didn't have a gripe with the Jews. They had a gripe with these followers of a man named Jesus. A big gripe with them. So the, the Jewish Christian missionaries were saying, why don't you get circumcised so that you'll be recognized as Jews by the Roman overlords and you won't be persecuted. So it was another little motivation there, political motivation. So they also wanted to please their Roman overlords who at that time had no gripe with the Jews, but a real problem with the followers of Jesus. The Israel of God then, and this is what I'll close with because this is the fruitful insight born a few years ago before we even came to this building that still bears fruit today. The Israel of God is a people determined not by fallen humanity's conformity, to the law or to outward ordinances of the law, but by the spirit who raised the crucified Jesus from the dead. That's who determines us. Israel, the true Israel, the eschatological Christological Israel is determined, defined and described by the presence of the spirit empowering them. Not the flesh. Ezekiel thirty six, twenty six to twenty seven, Romans one four, Romans eight eleven, first Peter three eighteen. Notice that now, after Romans thirteen, this is where the road we're taking, the flesh is no longer mentioned. It's all about the spirit now. It's the spirit, it's pneumatology now. Those in whom the spirit kindles faith are assured by the spirit of their identity as sons and as children of God. Sons means adopted. Children means born of God. But mostly, he assures them 
of being the Israel of God. Please notice what he says here in 814, beginning a new paragraph. This will just set tracks for us to run on. In verse 14, as many as are led, that means governed or controlled, directed, determined by the Spirit of God, are the sons of God. I found here, I find here at least, a hidden allusion to a passage in Hosea, in the Septuagint of Hosea. 2.1 it is in the Septuagint. In English translations, it's 1.10. In the same place, as he says also in 2.23 of Hosea, where I called you not my people, you will be called the sons of of the living God. Who's he talking to? Israel. The sons of God is a name for eschatological Israel. So Romans 8.14 has the same descriptor or descriptive term as Hosea 2.1. Huioi theu, huioi theu. The sons of God. The Hosea passage has the sons of the living God adding the adjective zontos, the living God. And so people say, well, then Paul isn't alluding to it because it says only the sons of God in Romans 8.14, but it says the sons of the living God in the Hosea passage. But don't you think he's established that God is the living God already? All the way through, especially Romans 8.2, the spirit of life engenders the sons of God. The spirit is precisely called the spirit of life or the spirit who gives life. In Romans 8, 6, the inclination produced by the spirit is life. The experience of it. And that's not this life that we were born into when we were, in my day, in 1951, you were slapped on the rear end. Welcome to the world. And... It's not that life made better. It's the life of Christ that makes us alive with a life that's conquered death. That's the life we're talking about here. Not how to live a better life. Those people who live a better life look down upon others who don't quite have that life. It might be an economic way of disparaging others and looking down upon others. I heard a conversation recently where someone says, well, you know, they're from, and they mentioned a place. And it was interesting because it was the place I lived. <laughs> and they said, you know, they're from there. And I walked away from that conversation for the rest of the night. I didn't want anything to do with it because it was, we live in this place, in this big house, and they live in that kind of dilapidated place. And I'm thinking, I lived there. So it was personal. But that was the attitude that was there. And I went, eh, gee, I don't really, eh, I think I'll go away. So, but it, there's a million ways to do it. It's called the pride of life in First John. The whole world is all about it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes isn't just, oh, I'm going to watch a pornographic movie. That's, of course, soul destructive. Wake up. That'll destroy your soul in about a week completely. 
and destroy your capacity for marriage and everything else. Yeah, that's really, really ugly, terrible, soul-destructive, and damning of the spiritual life in this time. It's a destructive thing. If you're a young person, don't ever go there. But the lust of the eyes that he's talking about is the lust to be seen by others as superior to others. The lust of the flesh is the impulsive desire of the flesh to show yourself as somehow better or superior to others. And the pride of life is that pride of status or status, whether it's social, political, ideological, intellectual, or where you live or what class you're in and how that shows you above others. It's a pride of status. It's all cosmic. It's all of this present evil age. It's just crap. So, in Romans 8, 6, the inclination produced by the Spirit is life. Not to mention the wider context in which it says we are saved by Christ's life. Ha-eschatos Adam, the life-giving spirit in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Christ is called the last Adam and a life-giving spirit by virtue of his resurrection. Romans 5, 10 also. We who receive the abundance of grace and the gift that results from God's righteousness or God's saving act reign as kings in life by one Jesus Christ in Romans 5.17. That life, I'm capitalizing that now, life, in the form of rectification or justification or setting things right, comes to all of humanity by one act of righteousness fulfilled by Jesus Christ in Romans 5.18. Grace through that righteousness, that saving act of God, now reigns as king unto the life of the messianic age, Romans 5.21. That life is properly called eternal life. Properly called eternal life. Why? Because it is a participation in the divine life of God. 2 Peter 1.4. It is also properly called the life of the coming age or the messianic age, which has already come, but has not yet been consummated. It came with the Christ event, came with resurrection. It is also called the life of the coming age or the messianic age because it is a participation in the human life of the man, Christ Jesus. Because I live, you will live also. Romans 14, or make that John 14, 19, Romans 5, 10. So it's called eternal life because we actually partake in the divine nature. We participate in the life of God. It's called the life of the coming age because it's a participation in the human life of the raised Christ. A life that has conquered death. Those who died with Christ were raised with him by the glory of the Father into newness of life, Romans 6, 4. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23. It would be safe to say that when the spirit of life who gives life to us 
and then assures us that we are the sons of God in Romans 8 16 that we are the sons of the living God we are eschatological Israel we are the Israel of God there is neither male nor female Jew nor Gentile Jew nor Greek slave nor free but it's all Christ corporate the Messiah the Israel of God Jesus Christ is both the Israel of God and the God of Israel and everyone who is in him is the Israel of God and our God is Jesus Christ my Lord my Lord and my God so it'd be safe to say that when the spirit of life who gives life to us and then assures us that we are the sons of God the sons of the living God is what he means in the newness of life, we serve God and one another, not by the oldness of the letter, but by the Spirit in Romans 7, 6. Now, I could close with an excursus, but it's t time is pressing. We haven't met much lately. I'll just say this. Should I do the excursus? It's very short. I'll say this. If you have to be somewhere... Hit the bricks now. You can, you can go. I'll have it in print. It'll be in tape. You can have it. But I have to. I'm catching up now. This is called an excursus, a digression. I'm going to be silent for a little while so you can go out privately and sneak out. Okay? No, not you, Jim. You're supposed to work in the booth. Here's the excursus. It's called the letter in the spirit. This is going to help you immensely when you read passages like 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9. You ever read about the letter versus the spirit? The letter versus the spirit. Romans 8, it's the flesh versus the spirit. Romans and 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 9, it's the letter versus the spirit. Here's an excursus, a digression with the purpose of making even clearer our identity as the Israel of God. And it's the letter versus the spirit, excursus or digression. In 2 Corinthians 3, the apostle writes of the contrast between the new covenant and the Sinaitic law mediated by Moses. The contrasts are striking. They're radical. In 3.6, the new covenant, he calls it, he calls it a ministration or a ministry. It means a distribution from an authorized source. The ministry or the ministration, a distribution from an authorized source of the spirit. The ministration means that by which God distributes the spirit or places it in his people or pours it out on all flesh. The spirit is contrasted with the letter here, grammatos, the letter, which means the law under the control of sin or the flesh. The letter here is a technical term for the law of Moses or the Sinaitic law that was given by the hand of angels through a mediator rather than directly by God giving his son. The letter is the law under the control of the flesh. And he says that the letter kills in second Corinthians three, six, the spirit is contrasted with the letter, which is the law under the control of the sin or flesh for the letter. He says deprives of spiritual life. It literally kills. But the spirit makes alive or brings to life. 
Then in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 8, the ministration, and that's the right translation. It's a King James has ministration, but it's right. Ministration means authorized distributor. The authorized distributor of death carved in letters of stone came with a fading glory, a fading glory. Like that which shone from Moses' face. That's why he put a veil over his face. Not because the people would be shocked by the glory, but because the people would be shocked by the fact that it faded every time he came in front of them. And this is contrasted. This fading glory that shone from Moses' face is contrasted with the ministry of the Spirit, which is the new covenant, in which there is the realized promise of the Spirit. Now Moses saw the Lord, but he was hidden in the crevice of a rock face. We are hid with Christ in God. Moses was hid in the crevice, and God walked by him and displayed his glory, but only saw the back of God as he passed by. That's all the law can give you. God turning his back. It's glorious. It's not as glorious when he turns around. You see his face. And his face is the battered face of the crucified Christ. Raised now to glory. Raised out of a shameful, horrific death and burial in a borrowed tomb into glory. It does not fade away. And so as far as the glory of the old covenant or the law, the letter, the ministry of the spirit has a far greater glory. The ministry of death is also a ministry of condemnation. It's death distributing, condemnation dealing. As far as glory, doxa, the ministry of the spirit has a far greater glory. The implication here is that the greater glory is an unfading glory, which is later explicitly revealed as the glory of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God, into which God wills to make all of humanity. And he effectively has already done this in the Christ event. On top of this, in 2 Corinthians 3 9, the Sinaitic law, the Sinaitic law, or the law that came from Sinai, is described as a ministry or a distribution agency which universally distributes condemnation. It's radically contrasted with the ministry of justification or righteousness or the new covenant which uniformly and universally dispenses justification or righteousness. So in closing, in 2 Corinthians 4, the apostle makes clear that the fading glory that shone from Moses' face after having received the law is contrasted with the glory that shines unfadingly in the face of Jesus Christ which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
Remember, after Moses asked to see the glory of God, he was treated to an expose of God's glory as it passed by him. Only after Moses was hid in a crevice of a rock face. Furthermore, Moses was only allowed to see the back parts of God. The law only allows. Well, let's say it this way. It only allows us to see God's back turned. That is glorious. It's glorious. It has a glory to it for sure. But what's more glorious? Is when God turned around and we see his face. That's what Paul saw on the outskirts of Damascus. The God who turned his back turned around and Paul saw his face. And he said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. So Paul said, he has made me a minister of a new covenant. Not like the old. And we are all ministers of that covenant. He turned it is the face of Jesus Christ, which was beaten and brutalized on the cross, which is now resplendent with an unfading glory, the glory of the Father, by which he was resurrected out of death. By Jesus Christ, whose incarnation, life in the days of his flesh, passion, crucifixion, death and resurrection, exegeted God explained God, told him out. And by that Christ event comes the knowledge of God and the knowledge that we are known by God and unconditionally loved by him. How does this speak to our message? We serve one another by humility in love rather than compete with one another in hyperiphania and human comparisons. We thank you, Father, for this that your word reveals stark contrasts by which we understand and by which we see and by which we understand that we are known and loved by you unconditionally. We know that we enter into a field of contention, the agona, and that's coming up in Romans 8. But we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus because all of these powers are defeated even though they refuse to leave the theater of battle. Grant us this assurance, grant us this steadfast patience, which is the patience of Christ in the battles that are sure, we are sure to face and overcome in in the future. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.